digital capacity for the arts. So we have the hashtag for the day, obviously, which is cows in water. Um, and show me the cow is now going to be the first thing I say to anyone who suggests that we make a film together. Uh, so, so thank you for that. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you about that. So did you just come across that and think something is wrong here? Ah, oh, there are the cows. And realise it was a perfect training example. Um, yes, I, I did spend some work training the guys in uh, Inverness and had to watch a lot of them programme to get an idea, and that was, it's in, in fairness, quite a lot of their stuff is pretty good, actually, but that was so appallingly off-beam that I just had to grab it. Right, well, well thank you for sharing <laughs> it with us. Um, I want to just throw this open right from the start. I think, I think any questions I could ask, you'll ask much better questions. So does anybody want to kick off with any interrogation of Mark here? There's down here, if we can pass the mic. Thank you. Hi, Mark. Hi. Um, I'm Nina from Yorkshire Sculpture Park. I've done lots of things on flip cameras before, but audio is something that I just... That's the thing that kind of freaks me out a bit. Um, I definitely won't move the camera anymore, but can you recommend what I should do about audio and what's maybe what kind of um, equipment I should upgrade to to get a better kind of quality? It's not really a question of upgrading to equipment. Um, Sound is absolutely important, vital. You can't make a movie without, without really good sound. And in fact, the audience will, an audience will put up with poor picture quality before they tolerate bad sound quality. Does that make sense? You need to get the sound right. And this, the best thing to do is to get the microphone as close to what's making the sound as you can. So if you're doing an interview, you need... How close is this microphone from my mouth now? Six inches or so? If you've got a very directional microphone, you might get away with having it down here, but these ones aren't. So I think with your flip cameras, if you're, get, if you're looking to acquire any camera to shoot with, um, a, an external microphone socket into which you can plug, the cheapest clip-on mic from Maplin will do a low better job than the built-in internal mic. Not because it's the better quality in itself, but just because you've got it close to the source of the sound. Yeah, a sort of guerrilla filmmaker friend of mine, um, Christian Payne, documentally on Twitter, uses iPhones a lot for his filming and always has an external mic, always sort of, you know, says you, and as you say, if the sound works, you'll put up with the shoddy video quality much Absolutely. more. Uh, yeah. If you can find a way of monitoring the sound as you're doing it by having a headphone socket, something as simple as that, and plugging your iPod headphones into it, just to convince yourself, not that the sound is beautiful, but actually just that it's there, because as soon as you start plugging external gadgets in, you'll find that bits of wires stop working and actually the, you've recorded zero rather than bad sound, which is the worst form of audio distortion, I think. Silence. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Does anybody, oh, there's somebody uh, at the back there with a question. Right, it's Lucy again. Um, it's actually not a question, but just to add to that, if that's okay. Um, we've just been making films using a digital SLR, and obviously the problem's the same with that, because the inbuilt audio on a digital SLR camera is terrible um, we've just been using a small um, fairly cheap digital recorder um, an Ederol um, which you can just hold up to the interviewee or use a clip on mic um, and then there's a fantastic piece of software called Dualize um, which um, syncs your video and your audio together for you. 
Now, does this make your professional heart quail? No, I think I've heard of this. They're a great plan. And that last bit of video was actually shot on a Canon 5D Mark II, I think. Uh, and the picture quality is astonishingly good. Uh, actually, one of the weird things with using digital SLRs to shoot video, and I've seen this happening myself, is that when you're filming people, what they do is, instead of carrying on, they go, they pose. They think <laughs> they're taking a still photograph of them. And it can be a real issue because the, people all react to cameras in different ways, but people react to digital stills cameras because in the way that um, they, they stop. So do you think that there might be a trade in, in buying up old, defunct cameras like this and turning them into digital SLR cases <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so that people think that you're seriously filming them, but yeah, in fact you're just right. using a Nikon? I think that's right. Or a big sign saying, this is a video camera. That would, that would that work, would work yeah. as well. You yeah. could have pay somebody to stand behind you, you with that sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Maybe the intern. Yeah, good that, idea. That's good. I think they're a bit busy with the flip cam. What about the idea of... Come to you say, of, of separating out the soundtrack, of recording the sound separately. It's, it's really the only way of doing it, I think, on digital SLRs. But it, as you say, it, until these bits of software came out, which did the syncing up of taking your sound, which is on one bit of kit, and your pictures on another bit of kit, and marrying them together in the edit, it used to take a long time to just get your material ready for editing. So um, it was a pretty, it slowed the process down. Thank you. Uh, there's a question here. There's a mic coming to you. Um, I want to know what people can recommend for editing um, something from a flip share or from an iPhone on your PC. Uh, Final editing, Cut Pro edit, 10, edit, obviously. Just, just obviously. very basic <laughs> editing software. I don't know whether you can use I that. Don't, I mean, I, I, I always feel nervous about recommending any mm. particular editing platform because, you know, anything I say, somebody will say, oh, no, uh, version 9 didn't work or you should try the other one. I think one of the things you should look for is something which has got a reputation for being easy to pick up, but actually has got a com is large enough and well-established enough to have a bit of a community out there that you can ask questions of, because you'll get stuck with it no matter what. And if there is, if there are active forums where, which you can either do a search to try and find out how somebody solved your problem already, or if it really is something that you think is a new one that no one else has posted about, that you know, there's thousands of willing geeks who will be delighted to answer your problems. So look for that community of support, I think. You want to add it to that, uh, Rich? Yeah, just very quick, is there any open source examples? Okay, so open source examples of video editors that you, you like? No, but there's, there, are, there are effective free ones, aren't there? I mean, iMovie on the Mac is practically free. Windows Movie Maker is practically free. They'll all let you cut pictures together, not very sophisticatedly, but they'll do it. And as soon as you start spending about 100 quid on Final Cut Express or Premiere Elements or whatever, then it's not a huge amount of money and you're starting to get really pretty sophisticated with that. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, also we're finding that some of the files we're recording, uh, we, we record poetry readings, are massive on, on the Video I've is big. Massive, and we video, can't actually, video is big. We can't actually email them to each other. That, that, no, you so shouldn't big. expect it. You, you can't do it. And we can't zip them. No, so if, if you... What should we do? You get an hour's <laughs> worth of stuff on this, and it's 11 gigabytes. You know, it's kind of unemailable. The only way of doing it, if you want to share stuff, I think, is to... YouTube it on a private link okay. and, and, and look at that. One of the, what, I mean, there, there, there are services that will let you move very large files around, yeah, yeah, like yeah. you send it or yeah. Dropbox. But Still even they won't do gigabytes of stuff. They'll do up to 100 megs if you want the free one, you know. But On a smartphone, it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the growth in file sizes is, 
is becoming an enormous challenge in terms of moving the stuff around. That's why you have industry initiatives like SohoNet, of course, where the production houses in London are linked together by fibre so they can move these multi-gigabyte files around and why the BBC invests so much in Reith, its backbone network. Is there any... I mean, is that going to start to affect... Okay, invest a lot. Uh, is, the, is that going to start to affect the capabilities, you know, the, the sort of the aspirations that organisations can have about their video? Well, I mean... This is what file compression's about, and turning your movie into something that goes on YouTube or a, an H.264 movie, which it keeps the video quality pretty high, but lets you move it around in a size which will go via Send It or something like that. But there's no two ways about it. Video just takes up a load of space, and you can squash it down a bit, but there comes a point when you can't do any more without losing quality badly. Okay. Any more questions anyone wants to, to raise? Yeah, there's one at the back there. I'll just get a mic to you. Oh, it was just a very quick question. Um, can I enrol in the BBC Academy? I'll, I'll pass you over to my colleague Eddie on that one. <laughs> the, the, the plan is to have a series of workshops based on these six seminars and we'd really love to find out afterwards either me being around or Kim or Jane what kind of practical skills you want. I mean, I think it's been an amazing session but Mark could be talking for three days and, and still just touching the surface of things. The BBC is slightly limited by the fact that we can't, we legally can't freely provide training to all comers because the private sector commercial providers of training would rightly and understandably cry foul at that. The BBC has to have very careful regard to existing markets. But through this partnership, we're hoping in a kind of Trojan horse kind of a way to create the, the space, the moral and legal space to provide training, hands-on craft training to a wider population of people than BBC staff. Um, so I'm really glad you asked that. We're working on how we do that for this sector because we're aware that in the absence of sessions like the last hour, there is a risk that this partnership, which is only 18 months long, might feel quite abstract, might feel quite quite good but like a lot of strategic forums and we want to get real with this kind of craft hands-on training because it, it's just fantastic. I think Mark, I, I would just add on training that it, it's quite difficult to, uh, I mean I, I can't recommend trainers out there, I've got, I really don't know the market but I think what you could do is ask them, ask potential companies that you think might be useful to you, ask them what sort of training they do because a lot of media skills training in the past has assumed that you already know quite a lot about television or video making and you know first half hour of day one will say right here's how you do the white balance on your camera and actually that's something not to worry about for miles for, for ages the toughest s task when you pick up a camera is not what do all the knobs and buttons do because actually these cameras when you're starting off, switch them to automatic and 90% of the time they'll do a better job than you will. What's hard is what do you point the camera at, for how long and why, and then what's my next shot going to be? It's that constructing of sequences, framing of interviews, how you, just how you craft the, the look of your stuff. You need to be making sure that anybody that's training you is gripped that side of things and not just the technicalities of cameras. Yeah, sure, there's a mic coming down from you. So you just give it a second. I'm just wondering, since if the BBC are saying that they can't build that platform, I'm wondering if the Arts Council have any plans to sort of facilitate 
what the organizations who are coming to these events can already do for each other. For example, the company that I work with, we produce our own video, build our own who website, make our own apps, all that sort of stuff. And yet some of the things that we don't do so well is maybe reach some of the audiences we'd like to reach. So we could sort of skill share with other organizations and we would be very happy to do that, to come in and do video training in response for helping with marketing, for example. Those kind of things that um, the Arts Council can maybe do rather than giving us money to do it, but help to build those bridges. Okay, Th thanks for that, that suggestion. Um, there's a response further back. We well, should have just given you all microphones to start with. Sorry, I probably said this earlier as well, um, that actually there's a whole host of community media organisations who have training at the very core of what they do. Um, and I'd really like to be involved in a conversation uh, about BBC Academy training because one of the things we're looking at is the, the local community media organisations setting up a series of training. It is mainly focused on audio and it is mainly focused on uh, radio, but there are some community filmmakers out there as well who have really strong skills and that's part of what they want to do. Okay, thank you. And someone else wants to pick um, up? I should also say the BBC do have two free informal access training websites, which is the College of Production, which I run, and the College of Journalism. They're not intended to be intensive, deep training, but there's some really good tips there on everything from how to set up a tripod to how to produce a podcast. And I'd really urge you all to go and look at that for kind of entry-level information. Okay, Th thank you for that. And, and there, there is the dig Building Digital Capacity for the Arts website where links to all of these resources and to the other organisations will be made available to share that with you. I suspect what we're about to see... I was see. about to put... Uh, sorry, I thought no, no, feel free. I was about to put the, web, the, the link up there. But, um, do it. Oh, I can't. Absolutely. Oh, if you... If you the... That's okay. So all of these will be made available and there'll be links and that sort of conversation and collaboration and skill sharing is a very important part of what this whole initiative is trying to achieve. I think the, the thing that Mark was saying that strikes me in terms of getting contents onto your website is about scaling the project. And when he's found the website, I want to ask him the hard question, which is that there was some guidance in there in his talk about the size of the project and what you need. Apart from just looking at how much money you've got to spend, which is what many of us are forced to do, how do you actually start making the decision as to what sort of project this is going to be? How do you go from, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had some video about artists, or wouldn't it be great if we had some, some material about our, you know, the, the new project we're doing on our website or available? How do you start making that hard decision about you know, getting from that idea into a budget? Back to my first point, I think, what's, what do you want to say and why do you think your audience are going to be interested in it? So if we get back to the intern making that, using their iPhone to shoot stuff for the gallery, um, how long do you think an audience would be happy to put up with um, people who've turned up at the gallery giving their views on what they've seen there? How long, how, long could, I mean, how long could that movie be? Probably only 90 or minutes or maybe 100. Well, absolutely. <laughs> but, I mean, we're talking, we're talking a minute or two at the most, aren't we? You, know, you can't stand much more than that, um, it, no matter how fascinating it is. So those are the sorts of thinking that you've, you've got to get into, I think. Um, okay. Do we have a... Well, we've got a question at the back. And, in fact, we've got two questions at the back. We'll take Marcus first. 
and then who that is in the dark, I can't actually tell. That's you. Marcus Drummond from Pilot Theatre. Just saying that Audio Boo is a great tool for um, just recording and then putting straight onto iTunes. It's one click and also geolocated and also photographs. And I'm, this hasn't been mentioned. I was wondering whether people still use that or whether it had fallen out of favour. How many people here use Audio Boo? How many people here haven't heard of Audio Boo? Just out of interest. From okay. Thank you. We'll show you later. Thank we'll you. do a boo later. There's also um, iPadio, and of course you can use SoundCloud for the same sorts of things. So there are a number of services that will let you cheaply record, occasionally edit and upload um, audio material with still images. Uh, obviously there's YouTube and, and Vimeo for, for video material. Yeah, I thought it was a good point that compression is becoming more and more important with Google and Apple and, and Adobe all battling out for formats. Just something to come across all of today. Broadband is an issue still, and uh, rurally, you have to be very careful if you're going to start uploading video that you do encode to suit the delivery. And I think that's very important to think about your delivery because we can produce very high quality, high definition video online, but it won't stream to everybody. So, in terms of that production value, I think it's very important to remember that your, some of your audiences have to think about the bit rate they can get and the streams they can get. And I think that's why you've got to be pretty careful about hosting your own video on your own website rather than using a, an established service like Vimeo or YouTube or whoever um, who are set up to do it and know how to do it. I mean, it's not quite as cool having a link to YouTube or an embedded link, but hey, it, you, at least you've got a better chance of it working. <clears throat> and I mean, also the technology is making that much easier. So with Vimeo, if you pay for the premium service, you can limit the um, domains that you can embed the video in. So it looks much more like it's actually hosted by you. People don't necessarily have to go through to Vimeo because you're paying for it. And this does come down to, you know, increasingly, if you're willing to pay for the services, you will get the thing that will be tailored to your needs and there's someone to complain to when it doesn't work. If you're using a free service, you will get what you pay for. And of course, the BBC invests an enormous amount of engineering expertise in delivering video material to people on the widest possible range of devices. Fortunately, that expertise is shared with the wider industry you can't buy it from the BBC, it becomes part of the standard setting process. And that's why increasingly it's becoming possible to assume that video can be delivered to whatever device people have in their hands. I mean, do you have any particular advice for people who are developing for mobile? Uh, I, would, I would say just that my, if, uh, my mobile phone's the same as anybody's and you get outside of a, a Wi-Fi zone or you get outside of a city centre and you can forget video. So, you know, it's, uh, it only really works if you're somewhere urban. And of course, there's only 2.9% of it, was it, Andrew? 3.9% of us with iPhones. Okay, um, one final question. So the hand just went up there, so we'll have that one. Yeah, it's more just advice, I suppose, and the, the hidden costs. I mean, obviously, there's the cost to, to set up, obviously, capturing and making your digital content. But what we're finding is we've now got a growing archive of digital content, and the hidden cost is storing that, keeping it. We're currently making about two terabytes a month. So, obviously, that's growing quite a lot in terms of how much footage we've got. Why are you keeping all your raw material? Uh, there's copyright issues. I mean, uh, Liverpool Philharmonic, for example, if we're recording an entire kind of five, six camera shoot of an orchestral concert, we've got an hour and a half's worth of footage there, which is used various in archives. It's been put into future productions, DVDs, etc. It's just really how trustworthy because it's quite new. The kind of remote servers, the storage, the guy in Texas who's got a server and is renting a space so if he wants to. You know, I, I, where, how trustworthy is that? Because you get told, you buy drives now, they'll just corrode, they'll wear out. What's the advice on that, really? I mean, data security is a nightmare, isn't it? I'm not quite sure where you start with it. If you want to be absolutely sure, you need a mirrored RAID at home, and you need a mirrored RAID in a safe somewhere, and you need it up in the cloud as well. 
So you've got to ask yourself to what extent you're prepared to pay for all that stuff. Uh, And and to what extent you just need to keep it for legal reasons, in which case maybe you want to spend some money on squashing it up and compressing it and making it more manageable. If you actually want to reversion it, then you need to keep it in its full uncompressed form. And that's expensive. You sure you really don't need to do that? Maybe you do. Data tape, (coughs) LTO4 format is very nice. Um, You can buy yourself a robot that will manage all your tapes and they're really cool. Yeah, but then yeah, but yeah, and they come in retro cartridges, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, I think sort of the, the question of uh, data formats is is too big a one for us this evening, uh, this afternoon. Um, I'm going to draw things to a close there. Mark, thank you so much for for bringing the tech, for posing some really interesting questions, and I hope for for framing people's discussions as they move forward about how they want to engage making video material. So thank you very much, Mark Beatty. Don't forget to share and bookmark our podcasts. Video and audio is available from all our seminars and masterclasses at artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. That's artscouncil.org.uk slash digital capacity. Building digital capacity for the arts. You've been listening to a podcast download from Arts Council England and BBC Academy.